0: Okay, go with me to the book of Romans, chapter one. What a morning. It has been a great morning so far. I mean, nothing like a little impromptu music that we didn't practice uh, to get you through the day. So we're mad at Kelsey for the time being for getting sick. We know it's not her fault, but we're gonna hold her accountable anyhow. So if you're watching at home, Kelsey, just know we're upset with you. And uh no, but anyway, pray she feels better. Um but uh, so we started this series a couple weeks ago, in the book of Romans, and um, it's uh, it's a it's a it's a tough book. Romans is a tough book. It's not it's not tough because of the truth that it contains. It's just it's difficult because of the way that we read Scripture. Um, we 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 you know we're we're devotional in our approach. I say we as as Western Christians. We we are we're sort of devotional in our approach to approach to the Scriptures. And what I mean by that is, um, we we like to take little little snapshots of, of of scripture and put it up on the wall, right? Um, we like to take we like to take little portions and um, sort of pin um, all of our confidence and our hope in that little portion of scripture. When the truth of the matter is, if you study how the Bible was given, um, God didn't give the Book of Romans in books and cha- or in, 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 in chapters and verses. Uh, it was a letter written, okay? So so when they received it, when the Apostle Paul wrote the letter to the Roman believers, uh, they read it as a letter. Whereas we take it now, and I'm thankful for the, for the chapter and verse uh, divisions that helps us to find our place. Um, I'm glad we don't have to read the whole book. We could do that today. It's only 16 chapters. Um, but, uh, you know, but But you can't, here's the struggle, all right, here's the struggle that I've had, is uh, is you can't really just take chapter one all by itself. You have to study chapter one with chapter two, chapter two with chapter three, chapter three with chapter four. Now there are other places in the book as we go along that are easier to break down in small sections. So I'm only saying all this to prepare you that I'm going to cover four chapters today. And I'm going to do my best. I, I've done my best as I as I prepared this. Um, I really I really worked hard and, and I prayed. I said, you know, Lord, I'm not writing a book here. Um, I'm trying to articulate this truth. I'm trying I'm trying to funnel it down where where we can digest it and understand it in about you know a thirty to two hour sermon, um, thirty minute two hour sermon. Uh, so the goal today is to take the concepts that are that are laid out here and And give them to you, and then what we'll do is is we'll back up as we go through it there There are a lot of recurring themes, a lot of recurring truths in the book of romans so So we'll continue to see this as it as it as it reciprocates and circles back around. But what we're going to do now is read with me in Romans chapter number one, beginning in verse eighteen. So this is where we left off before Romans chapter one, verse number eighteen. It says, "For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness." and unrighteousness of men who, uh, who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifested in them for God has shown it to them for since the creation of the world his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse because although they knew God they did not glorify him as God nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened, professing to be wise they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their heart to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So there's the categorical error that's made is that they worshiped and served the creature more than the creator. What you're going to find in the book of Romans is that God does compartmentalize people some. And, um, you know, I know in our modern day that's taboo. You're not supposed to stereotype. You're not supposed to categorize. Uh, You're not supposed to profile. But it is fun. And it works sometimes, right? And, uh, you know, we do. I don't know if you all know this okay just just prepare yourselves but we live in a pretty soft society i don't know if y'all know that everybody gets offended about everything well in the scriptures god does profile god does put people in different categories now what we're going to see is that none's better than the other not one's better than the other but there are certain stereotypical attributes that apply to different cultures and different people types and so he's 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 compartmentalizing a group of people, We uh, again, we, we tend to think um, strictly in the individual sense. We always every, every time we read a verse, we apply it specifically to the individual. We think either of ourselves or someone else. That's, again, just generally how we sort of interpret things. But in the scriptures, you'll find, especially here in the book of Romans, God does draw lines of division. And so right here in chapter 1, he's, he's referring the, the pronoun as they. So he's referring to them, uh, this sort of this group of people who have made a categorical mistake. They have held the truth of God in unrighteousness. They had a certain level of knowledge of God, but they rejected that knowledge. And then it says here in this, in this verse we read just a moment ago that they, they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. And we still tend to do that. We tend, we, we tend to, to place uh, our highest affection on created things, specifically people. Uh, when in reality, God's the one who should get the glory for any good that comes in and through our lives, right? But we, we, we live in a superstar society. We make, we make, we make little g gods out of men and women. And, and so he says that there's a danger when you worship and serve the creature more than the one who created the creature. Verse 26 For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. Now you're going to see several times here uh, phrases like this God gave them up or God gave them over. This is a concept that we we, we understand. Uh, it's been it's been it's been now identified by the term judicial hardening. You'll find this truth in the scriptures, whereby God doesn't God doesn't select certain people for heaven and certain people for hell. We're going to talk more about that as we study the book of Romans. But there is an essence where where God at some point will let go of people, uh, in the sense that if they if they you ever just had a dog that wouldn't stay in the yard and you get sick of it. I hate to use this analogy because people aren't dogs, but I don't know what else to use. But eventually, you just get sick of fighting with them. You say, you know what, idiot? Run off if you want to. We, we had that happen a while back. We, I can't tell the story about that dog because I always get mad thinking about it. But we had an old mutt dog that we adopted years ago, and it was just, it was the worst thing you ever met in your life. Crooked tooth, just ugly. I had compassion on this dumb dog and then regretted it every day. But, uh, That thing would just run off and run off, and finally it ran off and didn't come back. And uh, I didn't cry a tear, I can promise you that. Didn't shed a tear. Matter of fact, I had bad dreams sometimes that every now and then I'd get up and see that dog walking up our driveway and go, God, no, please, why? No, no, don't come back home. You don't live here anymore. But the concept is, you know, God will let people loose to their own ways. And, And if a person is obstinate, and a group of people are obstinate long enough. God's grace and God's mercy is there, but God will, God will let go and let them have their own way. Now, the truth is, for those of us who got saved perhaps later in life, myself getting saved at 19 years old wasn't that late in life, but, but I'd lived enough life that I realize in hindsight now there were times that God just let me have my way. I can look back and see when the Lord was dealing with me. I can look back and see when God was really upsetting my course because I was pretty hell-bent on doing my own thing. I can see where God got in my way at different times and tried to restrain me and tried to, tried to really warn me not to go down that path. But the more I fought and the more I pressed through that, the more God just sort of said, okay, you got have to learn this lesson the hard way. And so that's a concept that we'll look at throughout the book of Romans known as judicial hardening, meaning that God will sometimes just let go of the leash and say, all right, you want it, go after it. Now notice this. Again, you're gonna notice this statement, verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even uh, women exchanged the natural use for that which is against nature. Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful. And receiving in themselves the penalty of their errors which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. Here's another reference to this. God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness. Man, these people are bad, aren't they? Covetousness. Maliciousness. Full of envy. Murder. There's a bad guy. Strife. Deceit, not so bad. I'm just trying to compartmentalize the way we do. Okay? Evil-mindedness, thinking bad thoughts. There are whispers. That's not a big deal. Backbiter's probably not a big deal. Haters of God, that's a bad one. Violent, that depends. (laughs) Proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning untrustworthy, I start to sound like church folk, <laughs> hold on, no, we're talking about sinners, guys, <laughs> stay with me here, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death not only do the same but also approve of those who practice them. Now, we're going to continue our little mini-series titled Creating a Gospel-Centric Culture, but we're going to shift gears just a bit. We're going to dig a little bit deeper into the doctrinal and theological aspects of Romans today. So stay with me. We're going to cover four chapters. I promise it'll be worth your time today. All right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to share the truth of your word. I pray that you'd give me clarity of thought. I pray that you'd grant me the wisdom to speak this truth in a way that's comprehensive in a way that we can understand it. Lord, I pray that you would uh, remove any confusion from our minds. The enemy would love to keep us bound up in confusion and misunderstanding. I pray that we would have clear understanding today of these truths and these concepts. For your, by your grace and for your glory we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever wondered <clears throat> why God saved you and not a million other people like you? You ever thought about that? Out of all the people in the world, why you? Why me? Out of all the people, and if I were just to put this in my own context, of all the people that I partied with, of all the people that I did crazy things with, with uh, of all the people that I did drugs with and and got blasted out of my mind with and did stupid, I'm talking about stupid stuff. When, When we look back on those situations in life, again, if you got saved Later in life, if you lived a little bit of a wild life at some point, and you look back, do you ever think to yourself, how did I come out of that nonsense, and they didn't? How is it that God got a hold of my heart, that God saved me, that God delivered me from it, and I, and I look back, and there are still people that I love dearly that are still there, and they're still stuck in it, and they didn't make it out, and they didn't survive it? Why me? Why you? That's the bigger question sort of figure out why Jesus loves me all these other people. It doesn't make a lot of sense. But, you know, the reality is when we, and I've talked about how, how simple the gospel is and also how complicated the gospel is. This is where it gets complicated. It's simple in the ABC part, right? ABC, Jesus loves me. He died for me. If we call on him, trust in him, he'll save us. That's easy. That's the stuff Jesus said that a child could understand. That's the stuff that Jesus said to grown folk. You have to come with the faith of a child just simply believing in the the free gift that's given to us through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. But here's where it gets complicated. What makes me any different? What makes you any different? Why are you here today? I don't know how you think. I don't believe God's up in heaven pulling all the strings and moving all the pieces at all times. But at the same time, you are here because of the grace of God. You're here because of God's goodness and his mercy, and it's so why you? Why me? And, and then we get to Romans chapter 1, and we read about those people, right? Y'all know who I'm talking about, those sinful, evil people who do all that sinful, wicked stuff that you and I would never dream of, those people, right? Right? We see them and realize, man, I'm not like they are. I might have have broke some laws and I may have bent some rules, but I'm not like this Romans chapter 1 crowd. But this is why I said you can't just read it in snapshot segments. Because as soon as we flip to chapter 2, verse number 1, look what Paul says next. He says, you may think that you can condemn such people. But you are just as bad. I don't think I like Paul anymore. I really was feeling self-righteous part of the way through Romans 1. Weren't you? Oh, stop. Two or three of you being honest. Oh, yeah, the rest of you going, I would never think such things. I was feeling pretty good about halfway through the last part. Of Romans 1 and then chapter 2 verse 1 he says you think you can condemn these kind of people but you're just as bad and you have no excuse he says when you say they are wicked and should be punished you're condemning yourself for you who judge others do these very same things we know that God in his justice will punish anyone who does such things since you judge others for doing these things why do you think you can avoid God's judgment When you do the same things, don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? So while we're thinking about those people, and y'all know who you're thinking about. I ain't, but you are. Paul said, you're just as bad. You are just as bad. So so drop the stones that are in your hand that you're about to throw in judgment and realize the only person you ought to be looking at in this this context is you. You are just as bad. Now, now here's where we're going with this. I told you that we have to build this uh, each chapter upon chapter. And so I want to say first and foremost that there is a case being built here. How many of y'all ever caught a case? All right. Some of you, again, why are y'all acting so self-righteous today? Some of you had to get permission to leave your house to be here, and you're acting all holy. There's a case that's being built in the book of Romans. Now, what you're going to notice as we continue this study is you will notice a lot of legal terms being used throughout the book, a lot of legal terms that you're going to need to become familiar with, terms like justification, terms like propitiation, terms like imputation. We're going to look at these today. The terms like redemption—you need to become familiar, and I'll define these terms as we go along. But there are a lot of judicial terms that are being used throughout the Book of Romans. So first, I want you to notice the case that's being made. It's a case against self-righteousness. Okay, so if we're going to if we're going to have this conversation about creating a gospel-centric culture, we have to have a healthy self-image. Like a now, we think healthy self-image means that we have an overinflated ego. But a healthy self-image is actually a balanced self-image, and that is that that you understand who you are, and you understand what you're capable of, and you understand that any good that comes from your life is because of God's goodness, not your own. So Paul is building a case against self-righteousness. Notice this in chapter 2, verse number 17. Chapter 2, verse 17. We're going to read quite a bit of of passage, uh, uh, verses today. But notice this. He says, Indeed, you are called a Jew, and rest on the law, and make your boast in God. I'm going to be straight up honest with you. There, I could spend a lot of time today talking about what Paul said to the Jews and the context of it, but I'm not really preaching to Jews. You didn't notice that? You didn't notice that? I'm not really preaching to a room full of Jews. So not that it's not important. It is important, but the important part is, 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 is again, the cultural compartmentalization that was taking place. The Jewish people thought they were better than those people in Romans chapter 1. That was really the essence. They thought they were better than, than the people that are listed in Romans chapter number 1. So, so, so I'm not changing the Bible. Don't come at me with that. But you could say, you could read verse 17 like this. Indeed, you are called a Baptist. Or indeed, you are called a Pentecostal. Or indeed, you are called a Methodist. Or indeed, you are called an Episcopalian. Or indeed, you are called a Catholic. You can throw any title in there because the point is any group of people that thinks they're better than another group of people is who he's targeting here. Okay? So, again, historically it was the, the Jews, the people of Israel. But you could put any, any, any group of people in that. Verse 18, he said, he said, you make your boast in God, verse 18, and know his will and approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law and are confident that yourself are that you yourself are a guide to the blind a light to those who are in darkness so he says you know what you're pretty you got a pretty high opinion of yourself don't you this is again i say this often this is why we say around here that we're a church of broken people for broken people not a church for broken people i know that sounds like a very detailed nuance maybe splitting hairs a little bit but the fact is, when you say we're a church for broken people, it sounds like we ain't broke. So we say we're a church of broken people for broken people, meaning we understand that we still have problems too. And maybe you can help us with our problems, maybe we'll help you with your problems. We're just here trying to do the best that we can together. But here's, the, here's, here's Paul identifying the problem in, in the human heart. He said, you know, you think that you're a guide to the blind. You think that you were put here to to set everybody else straight, you feel like it's your calling to correct the errors and the wrongs that you see in other people. guess y'all never been to church before. <laughs> y'all never been to church? This is your first church, first church you've been in. Paul's calling out. He says, look, you're, you're not a guide to the blind. He said, you think you're a light to those in darkness? Verse number 20, you think you're an instructor of the foolish. You're so much smarter. You're a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you as it is written. So Paul is building this case against self-righteousness. He's, he's explaining to them, your little egotistical mindset toward the rest of humanity is nothing but self-conflated, bloviating ideas about who you are, when in reality, you're just as bad as the rest of us. Now, please let that settle in. You are just as bad as the rest of us. And, and, and I'm telling you right now, some of you can't see it, but some of these folks sitting here, they're recoiling internally. You want to fight and argue about it. Well, I'm, I never, I never, I never. You're not defined by what you never. <laughs> Did you know that? We think, we, think, we think omission equals righteousness. Well, I never killed nobody. Whoa. Wow. Golly, you take the platform. Jeez, Louise didn't know we were in the presence of such a saint. You never committed murder. That's amazing. That's amazing. Well, I've been faithful to my wife. Well, good. You should be. But that doesn't make you better than somebody who hasn't been. I know it hurts. <laughs> These are painful truths. I feel your soul crying out from your body. But he's making a case against self righteousness. He's tearing down their their self image. He says, You are not any better. I don't care if you're a Jew, a Gentile, black or white, Baptist, Pentecostal, Methodist. I don't care what your pedigree is. You're no better. You're no better. All the Baptists, I'm sorry. I say I take that back. You are. You're the the bride. You know. You're all you're all getting at sit at the most prominent seats in heaven. I'm sorry. I forgot. Y'all heard that joke. I hate telling jokes that I've told before. I take a certain bit of, you know, pride in telling new jokes. But here we go. <laughs> Y'all heard the joke about the, the guy that died and went to heaven. St. Peter's always there at the pearly gates. Y'all know how this goes, right? It's not in the Bible, but it's in every joke. So stay with me. <laughs> guy gets to heaven. St. Peter's there. Welcomes him through the gate. Again, this is a completely unbiblical joke, so please don't quote me on this. But old Simon Peter's walking this guy around heaven and showing him all the splendor and the beauty of the golden streets, the gates of pearl, the mansions over yonder and all that stuff, right? Well, as he begins to walk by the throne area where Jesus is seated, the guy notices that there are different groups of people sort of blocked out. And he said, man, what's up with this? He noticed this real subdued crowd over there on one side, and he said, well, who's that crowd Simon Peter said, Well, those are, you know, they're the Methodists, they're a little more quiet and methodical. Get it? <laughs> Whew, tough crowd today. <laughs> a little more quiet, and methodical. They're over there in that group. And then he said, Well, who's this group? And then says this group, you know, they're they're going through a bunch of stuff and standing up. Somebody's telling them when to stand, when to sit, when to stand, when to sit. He said, Who's that? He goes, Well, those are the Lutherans and the Catholics. They're sort of, you know. Over there, you never know. There might be some Lutherans and Catholics in heaven. I can't be sure, okay? But anyway, stay with the joke, people. And he said, over there, you know, there's this wild and crazy crowd. People running around, flipping cartwheels, screaming and hollering. He said, "Who's that?" He goes, "Do you even have to ask?" It's the Pentecostal crowd. And way, way over in a corner by themselves was this group of very refined people sitting together. And he said, well, who's that over there? Why are they by themselves? He said, hey, be quiet. He said, that's the Baptists. They think they're the only ones here. <laughs> that's a good joke, whether you like it or not. So he's making a case. How I many of all have heard that before? Ah, a few of you. See, shoot. I can't claim that as my own. Anyway, so he makes a case against self-righteousness. Notice this, number two, he's building a case against sin. Look in chapter three, verse number five. Romans chapter three, verse five. He says, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then, how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? As we are slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. So, Paul, Paul here, you know, Paul got a, got accused of a lot of things. He was he was a highly controversial preacher, and uh, one of the things that they accused Paul of, namely the Jews, accused Paul of preaching a gospel that was that was soft on sin. That that said, um, you know, if you if you just get saved, this is what they accused Paul of, and uh, it's kind of ancient. So you've probably never heard anything like this. But they accused Paul of preaching things like. You know, if you just get saved, you can live any way you want to and still go to heaven. Okay, it's what they accuse Paul of. Again, you've never heard this stuff. This is groundbreaking because people don't say this anymore. But they accused Paul of saying, if if we're saved by grace and kept by grace as you preach, Paul, well, then why wouldn't people just keep sinning? Why wouldn't people just continue living in, in wickedness after all? And this was this was the accusation. This was sort of the, the sly accusation that they made against Paul. They said, you know, uh, well, if... If my, if my unrighteousness accentuates the grace of God, then I guess I should continue living unrighteously. If, if my evil makes God's grace abound, then I guess I should continue in my, in my evil ways. And Paul said, this is actually what they're saying about me. They accused me of preaching this. But Paul, listen, Paul preached that God would deal with sin, that sin was not okay. That once you get saved, there ought to be a change. There ought to be a difference. And again, talking about terms that we're going to go over, the term regeneration means that the moment a person receives Christ and thereby receives the Holy Spirit into their life, God regenes and puts a new nature in them. And from that moment forward, they're not the same. That doesn't mean you can no longer sin. That doesn't mean you'll no longer make mistakes. It absolutely means that the presence of God will never leave you and you will always be dealt with and convicted by the Holy Spirit when as a believer, you do things you shouldn't do. Now I've lived this firsthand for 23 years. I don't get by with anything. Right? The Bible says, whom the Lord loves, He chastens and scourges every son whom He receives. That means God'll give you a whooping if you're his child A good parent is not going to let their kids continue doing something that is harmful and dangerous and degrading to their character without saying something to them. And God, the Bible says, will deal with us as his own sons and daughters once we trust in Christ as Savior. So Paul said, look, I'm building a case against sin. This message of the gospel does not mean that you can live any way you please. This message of the gospel doesn't give you an excuse to continue living wickedly and ungodly. So Paul's building a case against sin. Thirdly, I want to say that Paul is building a case. I know this is a broad statement, but he's building a case against civilization. Now look in verse number 9 of chapter 3. What then, he says, are we better than they? Remember these compartments? So he built this this categorical, this area, these people in Romans chapter 1. Those people, as we'll refer to them, okay? Those people. Those people who aren't like us, their sin looks different than our sin does. He said, uh, he said, are we better than them? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. Verse 10, as it is written. now Now soak this up. As it is written, there is none righteous, not one. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. you got to be careful how you say that word. Verse 14, <laughs> I said a bad word last Sunday. Trying to pronounce shirt with tic-tacs in my mouth. That was in the closing announcements, if you missed that. Verse 14, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear fear of God before their eyes. Who's he talking about? all y'all. He's talking about all of us. So he's building a case against sin. Now, now listen to me very carefully. Mankind as a whole has a general knowledge of right and wrong. He said that in chapter 1. Mankind as a whole has a general knowledge of right and wrong. Choosing to concede to that knowledge is, in fact, the actual issue between morality and and immorality in general. Choosing to acknowledge whether you recognize right from wrong is the actual problem. It says, that which may be known of God is clearly seen in them, being, being revealed to them by His eternal power and Godhead. So, so God would be unjust. Don't miss this, this, this statement. God would be unjust in judging sin If there were not a general understanding of what is right and wrong, how do you judge somebody when they didn't know the difference between right and wrong? God would be unjust. It says it in Romans, by the way. I'm not making up stuff. God would be unjust to judge someone when they didn't know right from wrong. If you don't know to do right and you don't know what is wrong, you can't be held accountable. You're not culpable for evil if you didn't know you were doing evil. So God placed a general knowledge in every person. Where does that knowledge come from? Well, first of all, it comes from the commandments of God. In chapter 2, verse number 3, notice this again. Stay with me. We're going somewhere today. Chapter 2, verse 3, he says, And do you think this, O man, who, who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each according to his deeds. Now notice this, verse 7. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. Ah, but the Jews don't want to be first this time. Verse 10, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality. With God, for as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. And so God gave us the law to reveal our own sinfulness, right? He gave us the law to reveal our own sinfulness. Now you often hear me say that there is only one way to heaven. I need to correct that today. There are actually two ways to heaven, okay? The one way is the way we know. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, okay? We get to heaven through Jesus Christ. The second route you can take is to impeccably keep the law without ever breaking a single one of them. The choice is yours. You can get to heaven by being, you can't, you can't get to heaven by being good, you can get there by being perfect, okay? So if you're perfect, the rest of this message is not for you. Here's what he's saying. He says, God gave us his law because in order for him to be the judge, he also must thereby be the, the law giver, and the law is what, what reveals to us the fact that we are broken. Now, hear me well. If, now, if they take that little clip and put it on TikTok, I will be condemned as a heretic. Okay? But hear me well. The law serves one primary purpose. One primary purpose. Now, you've heard me say this many, many times, and, I, and you'll hear me say it throughout this series as well. You can't legislate righteousness. Okay? You can't make a person be good by telling them to not be bad. Are we we still here? Okay. You you can't make a person be good by telling them to not be bad. You can't tell a person no and expect them to always obey that command. So God understands that, and God gave the law for one express primary purpose. Notice this, chapter 3, verse number 19. Now, stay with me. Remember, we're building a case here. Chapter 3, verse number 19. He says, now we know that whatever the law says... It says to those who are under the law, what's the purpose of the law then, Paul? He says the purpose of the law is that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Now, so those of you who think you're going to make it that second route by keeping the law perfectly, I have really, really bad news for you. We already read it. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The law was given to reveal the fact that we are all unrighteous, that we're all broken, that we've all made mistakes, that we've all messed up by omission and by commission. We are sinful. We are sinfully flawed, sinfully broken. And so God gave the law as the spiritual MRI to reveal the deep, dark crevices of our heart so that we could see ourselves for who we are and see the need that we have for a Redeemer to step into our lives and deliver us from ourselves because the worst thing God can do, according to chapter 1, is to let us have our ways. So this case is building. We get this knowledge of God from the commandments. We know that whatever the law says, it says that to those who are under it, so that every mouth may be stopped. But what about those who don't have the law? He's writing to the Jews, what about those what about our Gentile ancestors who didn't have the law like the Jews had? Well, the second thing he says that will reveal the knowledge of God is what we call the conscience. If you notice in chapter 2 verse number 12, Romans chapter 2 verse 12, He says, for as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law, for not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So he said, you're not not justified because you have the law. You're not justified because you have the Bible. Did you know that? You're not justified because you hold truth. Remember that conversation we had last week? A lot of people have so much truth, they forgot about the more important things, love, mercy, grace, forgiveness. He said, don't think that you're right with God just because you have the truth. He says, "Where well, it's the doers of the law that will be justified. Verse 14, for when the Gentiles, who do not have the law, do by nature the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. Who show the work of, of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. And so there's a lot of truth here that we don't have time to cover, but the primary concept that's being given is that even a person who doesn't particularly have the law of God has a conscience. Every human being has a conscience. And so we notice, first of all, the power of the conscience. According to verses 14 and 15, the conscience is the handwriting of God on the human heart. Everybody has it. Universally, God wrote his law. God wrote the difference between right and wrong. Now they may not know thou shalt not, they may not know all the breakdown of the law, they may not understand the judicial aspect and the Levitical priesthood of, of the Old Testament. They might, they, look, they're not going to understand all those details, but, but just the general concept that there's good and there's bad, there's, there's, there's light and there's darkness, there's right and there's wrong, that concept is written on every human heart. And so the conscience itself, even a person who's never heard the gospel, even a person that's never read the book of Genesis, even a person that doesn't understand the things that you and I understand, have a general knowledge of right and wrong. And that knowledge leads them to a point of, of of either acceptance or rejection where they realize, I'm not sufficient on my own. There's something missing in my heart. There's something broken inside of me. There's a piece that's that's supposed to belong that I can't seem to find, and it will give them general direction toward God. It doesn't matter who they are where they're from. The conscience is powerful because God wrote that knowledge in their hearts. But the problem with the conscience is that it is flawed. The conscience is broken just like the rest of humanity. Notice what Paul says here. He says that their their conscience bears witness between themselves, their thoughts, accusing or else excusing them. So the problem with the conscience is it either accuses or makes excuses. We're good at this. I'm really good at making excuses. Really good at it. I can come up with some valid stuff. Right? Why'd you do that? Well, if you want to know, I got a very good reason. So he said the problem with the conscience is that, is that the conscience is broken. It's flawed. It will, either, it will either accuse you. Now think about this. You can't apply this to yourself. It will either accuse you whereby you live a, a self-condemning life. You live a life where you're, 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 just, you're always down on yourself. You're always critical of yourself. And, and, and listen, self-critique is important. It's, it's good to identify your flaws. It's good to have a healthy level of self-awareness. I think a lot more people need that. Just a healthy level of self-awareness. But the problem with the conscience is that the conscience can also become an adversary in the sense that it will continually make you feel guilty and continually accuse you of things where you live under this dark cloud of doubt and despair and condemnation because your conscience is broken. And even though perhaps even as a Christian you've received Christ and you've received forgiveness you haven't forgiven yourself because you're self-condemning continually and you won't let go of what Jesus has forgiven the conscience is condemning it's accusing you or he said the other on the other side of the spectrum is it excuses you you learn you learn very well how to make excuses for bad behavior you learn very quickly how to, how to excuse yourself when you do something wrong. Well, I did that because you did this. Everybody loves those kind of apologies. How about this one? I'm sorry you felt that way. <laughs> this isn't too personal. Somebody shared with me recently, uh, somebody that apologized to them by saying, you know, I'm sorry that the truth hurt your feelings. I'm sorry that my right hook broke your jaw. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'm sorry, I'm sorry that the truth hurt your feelings. And so we just we just excuse ourselves. And we and we make these we make these, you know, sort of fabricated, self-justifying apologies, and you know, and again that goes back to, well, I ain't never killed nobody. Man. The conscience is flawed, even though it gives us a general knowledge of God, it also, over time, the Bible talks about the conscience being seared with a hot iron, and it, it gets, it, we get callous and it becomes cut off, where stuff that maybe we felt bad about in our youth, the longer we do it, the more hardened we become, and we no longer feel guilty when we really are guilty, and then I need you to see this, golly guys, we got to hurry. It's Tate's fault for running late today. Second thing, I only have two points. Second point is this. Not only, is, not only uh, is there a case being built, but I want you to see number two, that there's a concept being established. Now, this is important because con- there's a concept that is being solidified in the early parts of the book, the early chapters of the book of Romans that will, that will continue throughout. Now, I don't know how you learn, how you, how you obtain knowledge, but I'm, I'm, I'm what they call a concept learner. You know what that means? means leave the details out, okay? Just get me to the point. I need to understand the concept. Once I understand the concept, I can go back and color in the lines, okay? So I don't have an engineer's brain. We have some weirdos in the room that like math and weird stuff like that. Who needs formulas, right? You just know it's there. So I need to understand the concept. I'm going to give you the concept today that Paul is building. And so notice this in chapter 3, verse number 21, Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Set forth as a propitiation by his blood. There are three of our terms right there in those two verses. Justified, redemption, propitiation. God has set forth as, the, as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? Here's the concept. You ready? He said, if that's the case, where, what room do we have to brag? Where is boasting? It's excluded. Verse 27, by what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Wow. Therefore, we conclude. Here's Paul's conclusion as we're building here in the first three, four chapters of the book of Romans. Here's the conclusion to this subject. He said the conclusion is that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Now, it's pop quiz time. You ready? What is the question? said it two weeks in a row. Wow, thank you. All right, hey, you started it. That's good enough for me. Are we saved by works slash keeping the law? By the way, if you're saved by works, the law is the only logical pathway, right? You don't get to make up your own set of rules. It's not situational ethics. God already wrote ethics, and He already pinned down morality. So you don't get to write your own. If you're gonna be good enough to get to heaven, you gotta keep the law. So if we're talking about being saved by works, the the works have to be the law. And that's the case that Paul's making. So the question is: are we saved by works slash keeping the law, or are we saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ? That's the question. That's the only question. Remember? Thank you. The only question is: are we saved by grace? Or are we saved by keeping the law? That's it. It's not how religious are you. It's not how many times you've been baptized. It's not are you are you good enough? You're not good enough. I'm not good enough. Are we saved by works or are we saved by the law? Right? It's the only question. Y'all want me to answer her question? I mean it's not the right place and time, but I can. James says faith without works is dead right? He says, if a man says he has faith and doesn't have works, can faith save him? The answer is no, because faith didn't die for you on a cross. Jesus did. You're saved by grace through faith. Faith is the vehicle that carries you to the foot of the Nazarene, where you believe in him and are born again. And when you're born again, you're regenerated and given a new nature. And so Jesus changes you internally. So the only question is, are we saved by keeping the law, or are we saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We're going to answer that real quick. So here's the example that Paul gives us. Notice this, in Romans chapter 4, verse number 1. Romans chapter 4, verse 1, he says, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. You Remember the concept that was established. He said if if we're justified by Christ, where's boasting? What do we have to brag about? Well, we don't. He said, Where's boasting then? He said, If Abraham, verse 2, is justified by works, he then has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. So he says, Abraham, this is Genesis chapter 15, verse number 6, by the way, that's being quoted. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now, Abraham, it's important to note, lived before the law. Did y'all know that? Chronologically, Abraham comes before Moses. The law came by Moses. Abraham lived before the law. Now, watch this. This is a beautiful truth that's laid out. Verse number 19. He says, speaking of Abraham still, he says, In not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body, Already dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief. Now, what's this talking about? It's, it's referring to the story in Genesis where God told Abraham that him and Sarah would have a son in their old age. Abraham was 100, Sarah was 90. I don't know if you've studied much about how the world works, but that's not, generally, that's not normal for a 100-year-old man to impregnate a 90-year-old woman. Okay? But here's what it says about Abraham. It says that when God gave Abraham that promise, he did not waver at the promise through unbelief, verse 20, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was able to perform, and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, notice this. I mean, isn't Abraham's faith amazing? It's incredible. Abraham's faith is so amazing, so incredible that when he believed God, he never once wavered, he never once doubted, he never even had this moment where his faith sort of had a hiccup and he got his eyes off of God. That never happened, never with Abraham, did it? Well, there was that one time with Hagar. You remember his, his wife's handmaid or house helper? that she said, you know, I guess maybe what the Lord meant was he wanted you to impregnate. Hagar and Abraham argued and argued. (laughs) Right? Oh, now, honey, shucks, I couldn't do that. Oh, you know I'm committed to you, baby. No, he, he got Hagar pregnant. They had a son named Ishmael. Remember when Sarah... Heard the angel talking to Abraham. Says that she she LOL'd. She laughed. Abraham and Sarah were given this mighty promise from God, but Sarah laughed at it. Abraham wavered so much that he took took matters into his own hands, and I'm speaking very cautiously here. But he took matters into his own hands, and, 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 and through carnal pragmatism, he thought, you know what, I know what God actually meant. He didn't mean Sarah, he meant Hagar. And, 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 but, but look, here's the point. Here's the point. Remember the terms I said we need to remember? Imputation, justification, propitiation. Think about this. Paul's making a point. We all know the story. Every Jew knew the story. You think a Jew reading that would go, oh yeah, yeah, Abraham never screwed up, never one time. You think They could have quoted the book of Genesis. Paul's making a point that God gave Abraham a promise, and in the moment that God gave him the promise, he received it. He believed it. He did. But he went on, and his faith wavered, and he did have some mess-ups, and he made some mistakes, and he did some things that are shameful, and he should have never done them. But Paul's talking about the fact that all Abraham had to do was put his faith in what he did understand. And in that moment... In that covenant moment between God and Abraham, Abraham did believe, and God counted it to him for righteousness. See, being a Christian doesn't mean that you're going to put your faith in Christ and, and then never fail. It doesn't mean that you'll pin your faith in Jesus and never have a moment of doubt. It doesn't mean that, 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 that you can't go through dark seasons of fear and failure. It does not mean that as a Christian, you'll never screw up, but it does mean. Now listen, you remember the question I asked earlier? Why you? Why me? Why us? Because when God's Spirit spoke to us, spoke to you, found you wherever you are, wherever you were, when the Spirit of God spoke to you, You said yes. You said yes. Now it may have taken 15 different times for God's Spirit to knock on your door. It may have taken a lot of letting go and a lot of disaster and destruction coming into your life. It might have taken a lot of times for you to walk through the school, the hallways of the school of hard knocks. It might have taken a lot of that. But there was a point in time When the Spirit of God spoke to your heart and dealt with you, that you said yes. This is why Jesus said things like John 6, verse number 44, no man can come to me except the Father who has sent me draw him. There comes a point in every person's life when the Spirit of God will specifically draw you and deal with you. We call this, the old timers used to call this Holy Ghost conviction, when the Holy Spirit would work in a person's heart, and convince you of your need for Jesus Christ. The difference between us and them, humanly speaking, nothing. We're all sinful, we're all broken, we all make mistakes. But the difference is believing, trusting in the Lord Jesus as our Savior. And if you're here today and you've never done that, God's not expecting you to clean things up before you come to him. You haven't fallen too far for God's grace to reach down. If you'll trust in him and call on him, he'll save you. He'll save you. He'll change your life from the inside out. Let's all stand. Our Heavenly Father, we come in Jesus' name. And Father, we pray that your hand of blessing would be on every heart today. I pray that you'd speak into every mind. I pray that your voice so clearly would... Grant understanding that we can make decisions based on what we need to make decisions on today, Lord. And if there's someone here that doesn't know you as their Savior, I pray that you'd save them today. Father, do as only you can. And we won't boast of anything we've done. We'll give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.